0: All right, great to see you guys. It's good. You're looking really cozy in here this morning, okay? So we do have a a date, a guarantee of when they'll be done with the worship center. Uh, I'm not going to hold my breath, but um, let's just say we're probably going to be cozy for another month, give or take. We would have had you in last week based on the schedule we hoped to do. Um, but supposedly they've gotten their bottoms in gear, literally, and the seat bottoms are coming through. And so once the install happens, it should be very quick. Everything else, for the most part, is done. Some tidying up, some uh, sound EQing and all of that, because the room is quite different with the flooring and whatnot. So thank you for being patient. I really cannot express how much I appreciate your willingness to sit this close into the spit zone, okay? I'm sorry. I know it's dangerous. Yeah, it just is what it is. Bring a tarp or an umbrella next week. I'll do the best I can. I do thank you, though, for understanding. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing. It's such an exciting thing to see people getting saved every week, over and over. Another young lady gave her heart to Christ this week. Um, And uh, yeah, you can praise God for that. We have, we just have so many good things going on and I don't wanna take it for granted. I just love this book that we're gonna be laying in for a while. And I've never done anything like this, sort of preaching a few chapters and back and forth. But if ever there was a book that was just saturated with Old Testament, just absolutely soaked with the words of the prophets and the words of the psalmist. It would be the book of Hebrews. So if you're not there yet, open it up, please, if you have a paper copy or click it, swipe it, however you get to it. We're going to be in Hebrews for quite some time, then back to Genesis, back to Hebrews. And I thought about the theme for this series. You know, with Genesis, it was very apologetic, or it is very apologetic, fact or fiction, right? With Hebrews, though, most every series you hear about Hebrews has something to do with Jesus being better, Jesus being greater, Jesus being supreme, and all of that is true. We'll talk about it. But there is this concept in Hebrews that I could not get away from. And as I was talking to Karen, my ministry assistant, we were both looking at themes and ideas, and I was praying, God, give me something. It was so clear when, I, when it came. It was just so obvious that this was the direction I wanted to go in the theming. And I've chosen this, we'll show you on the screens. Hebrews, an anchor for the soul. There's this concept in Hebrews that people tend to drift. We get connected to God, but then we tend to drift. And the writer's warning these Jewish Christian folks, don't drift back. Don't drift away. Stay anchored. And there is an anchor for your soul in Hebrews 6, and his name is Jesus Christ. You can be anchored in Christ. We have a world with a lot of drifting, don't we? We're not drifting toward God. You never drift toward God or godliness. You always drift away. And so we have this world that is adrift, and I think it's a perfect time to start a series on being anchored. And so I want to start from the beginning, and I want to learn verses in every chapter, just like we do in every new book. And I really felt convicted. We had been in Genesis since January. I really felt it was time to get back and spend some time seriously in the New Testament. So we'll be here a while. How long will it take to get through Hebrews? A long time, I can guarantee you that. Um, so, but we are gonna start with verses one and two as far as learning them, and so let's throw them on the screen. Let's see if you guys would just say this out loud with me, no blanks today. We'll start learning these verses, you ready? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed, heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Isn't that cool? Right there, we got to tie back to Genesis. Right out of the gate, God says, through the writer, I'm going to talk to you about the one who is greater than all others. I'm going to talk to you about the one who is, uh, you know, before I spoke through the prophet's But in these last days, everything on the other side of the cross, everything from the resurrection forward in the Bible is considered the last days. And in these last days, I'm going to talk through the Son. And God appointed him. heir of all things, we're going to unpack all of that. And he made the worlds through him. And so I decided to use questions all through chapter one. So I'm just going to ask a series of questions. And the first question I'm going to ask comes out of Hebrews 1. And it is this question. Who's the goat? Do y'all know what the goat is? Everybody knows what the goat is, right? Not, Not that kind of, or however they make sounds. That's probably a sheep. But who's the goat? The greatest of all time. Who's the goat? All right, that's the question we start with. I like boxing. I've been a boxing fan my whole life. If you were to ask me the goat of boxing, certainly he would tell you the greatest was Muhammad Ali, right? Cassius Clay, he would tell you. Some of you may say, "No, man, it's not. It's not Ali. It's Rocky Marciano. Oh, man, it's not Marciano. Sugar Ray Leonard. It's not just heavyweights. Come on, man. Sugar Ray Leonard. And we could debate that. Basketball. There's been this sort of raging debate. Are you on Le- the team LeBron? Or are you Team MJ? Well, obviously, I'm a North Carolina boy, man. It's Michael Jordan all the way, the greatest basketball player of all time. And you can disagree with me, and you can be wrong. It's okay. College football coaches, right? College football coaches. Well, Bear Bryant's name's obviously gonna come out soon. And as much as I hate to say this name, Pastor Todd, (laughs) some of you would say Nick... (laughs) Satan, Satan. no, Saban, (laughs) Nick... Saban, Ugh, it's painful. All of that up for debate. Now, if you said ladies basketball, you'd say, Pat Summit, all day long, no debate. And when it comes to men's college basketball teams, obviously no debate. North Carolina Tar Heels, praise God. Of course we know they're the greatest, no debate. (laughs) Who's really, don't write me with your opinion. I love you, but I don't care. Okay, so here's the thing. Who's really the greatest of all time? I mean, really the best of the best. We live in a world struggling with priorities. We live in a world that is quickly drifting away from truth. And when we come down to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God, who is the greatest? Well, we're going to find out today, right? The Lord brought me here to this profound and challenging and wonderful book. And when we take an extended journey through a book, you must always set your proper context. Text without context is pretext or proof text, and you will get off base. Let me see if I can explain why. I normally start simple. I like to do things like this, author, audience, aim, And I'll often add time frame because you got to set your kind of your historical context. So author, audience, aim, time frame. But why is it so important? Well, you come to my house and you might hear a phrase like this. You might hear Cindy call out something like this. It's happened. Bobby, how's your sugar? Now, if you don't know my family well and you don't know our situation well, you might think she's asking her husband, how's his sugar? Well, the truth is she would never say that because she knows I'm always deficient. I need more sugar, right? (laughs) Give me some more sugar, baby. I need more. And so I'm always going to say I'm low. I'm low. My sugar's low. But she's not talking to me. In fact, now she probably wouldn't say, Bobby, how's your sugar? She would normally say, Bo. Little Bobby's become kind of Bo around the house, Uncle Bo, Lucy calls him. And so she would be talking to our son, and she would be acknowledging the fact that for the last five or so years, he's lived with type 1 diabetes, He's got him a new pump. It's cool. It's working great. And he's doing really well with that. But that is a a, a disease that's challenging. And so she might, what she's saying is Bobby the third, because I'm Bobby Jr., Bobby the third, how is your blood glucose level? Where's your number? Are you too low? Do you need me to get you something? Are you too high? Do you need to drink some water and flush your system? How are you doing? You see, Bobby, how's your sugar needs context. Words need context. Phrases, sentences, even paragraphs, books, epistles, letters, like Hebrews, need context. So what is the context? Before we stand to read, let me give you these four things super fast. We'll leave them on the screens quite a while. You don't have to write them the way I've said them, but let me just give you my take. You do not have to agree with this. In fact, many people would say, nah, I don't really know. Who's the author? I'm going to write this. Maybe Paul, God only knows... (laughs) ultimately God himself. Maybe Paul, God only knows ultimately God himself. No name is attached to the book. Students have been discussing this for a few millennia now, and the earliest traditions point to the apostle Paul. The King James Bible, if you have one in your hand, even would acknowledge Paul. The earliest tradition says Paul. I probably lean more Pauline than anything else, but I don't know. The truth is, I don't know. Even great scholars have argued, Apollos, Luke, I might say, I don't know, Philip the Evangelist, Mark, Priscilla, Aquila. There are lots of options if you read the commentaries and you really study this. I lean toward Paul. The primary argument against Paul is that the language, the grammar is different. That is a horrible argument. Let me tell you why that's such a poor argument. I would write an academic paper very differently than a sermon manuscript, very differently than a love letter to my wife. I'd use different words, sentence length would be different. I would speak or I would write very differently. I think an argument that the language is different, that's just baloney. That's not a good argument, does not hold water. At the end of the day, though, we know a few things. We believe that this guy's a Jew, or at least incredibly inclined and knowledgeable about Jewish tradition. He identifies himself with his Jewish reader. He identifies himself with Timothy. Paul could do all of that. The benediction in particular of Hebrews, we'll get there one day, is particularly aligned with Paul's style of benedictions. The writer's been imprisoned, so on and so forth. Okay, Warren Wiersbe said this, though. Whoever the author is, he has a good knowledge of the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew with just a little bit of Aramaic. Primarily, though, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in Luke's day, it, it, they were using the Septuagint as their Bible. The Old Testament had been translated into Greek. But listen to this. The early church historian Eusebius quoted the biblical scholar Origen as saying, who it was that really wrote the epistle of Hebrews, God only knows. And these guys lived a long time ago. And so they're they're saying, look, only the good Lord knows. And I would say, look, what? Well, God himself wrote it. What I will do my best to do as I'm preaching Hebrews is not say Paul said or such and such that I'll try to say to you, the writer of Hebrews says, because the book has no author specifically mentioned. So I'll try to do my best. I'll slip sometimes. Forgive me for that. You do not have to agree it's Paul. It is not a salvation issue. I just tend to lean there. Now the audience is pretty clear. The audience of the book, I would say the simplest way to write it is Jewish Christians. The earliest extant or existing manuscript of Hebrews contained this heading to the Hebrews. Frequent appeals to the Old Testament, extensive knowledge of Jewish life, not uh, encouraging them not to return to Judaic rituals. They all support my conviction. And some scholars even affirm that the addressees were Jewish Christians because of the book's heavy emphasis on Jewish topics and themes, particularly the fact that Jesus is greater than, fill in the blank, angels, Moses, Joshua, Old Testament believers, etc., Jewish Christians. Sometimes we would say, depending on who you're talking to, I have Jewish. Christian friends. Some of them preferred words like Messianic Jew. Most don't. Most would prefer Christian or Christian Jew or Jewish Christian. So I'm just going to say those who came from Judaism, like all the earliest disciples, into Christianity, okay? And then what's the aim? I'm going to take a statement out of my Bible. My Bible here is, is in the beginning. I don't know if you can see this, but you see this little paragraph? This is not a study Bible. It's just my preaching Bible. I've had it 20 years, and so it's pretty worn and marked up. But here is little paragraphs that tell you about the book. And out of that little paragraph, it says this. There is more to be gained in Christ than to be lost in Judaism. I would even argue you could fill in the blank at the end with anything, More to be gained in Christ than lost in riches. More to be gained in Christ than lost in fame or fun or looks or abilities or promotions or stuff. More to be gained in Christ than lost in anything else. I want to read this to you just for a second. Many Jewish believers, having stepped out of Judaism into Christianity, wanted to reverse their course in order to escape persecution by their countrymen and by the government. And I'll tell you about who that is in a moment. The writer of Hebrews exhorts them to go on to perfection or maturity. His appeal is based on the superiority of Christ over the Judaic system. Christ is better than angels, for they worship him. He's better than Moses, for he created him. He's better than the Aaronic priesthood, for his sacrifice was once for all time. He's better than the law, for he mediates a better covenant. In short, there's more to be gained in Christ than lost in Judaism. So that's where they're coming to that conclusion, and I totally agree with that. The indication here is that these early Christians were wanting to avoid persecution. Judaism was sort of tolerated around Rome until 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? What'd they do? Do you remember? They, they tore the temple down. You remember? Not one stone left on the other. Yes, the supporting wall was left. We'd call that the retaining wall. That's today what we call the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. But that was not the temple. That was the Mount Upon which the temple was built on top. And so, what happens is, leading up to this time, persecution increases dramatically. And if you were a Jew, you were sort of tolerated, kind of left alone, but a horrific, brutal. I will describe for you some of the brutality in the coming weeks, and I am telling you, it'll turn your stomach. The brutality of a particular emperor named Nero came to the fore. And Christians began to be slaughtered en masse. And there was this tendency to say, wait a minute, maybe we should go back. Maybe what we had was good enough. Think about it. Jesus was a Jew. All of his earliest disciples were Jews. His first converts were Jews. They did not meet in Christian churches. They met in Jewish synagogues and in homes. The church was birthed out of Judaism. Their first controversies did not deal with dancing and drinking. They dealt with Jewish law and ritual and rite. Christianity's first critics knew it as a sect of Judaism. Oh, that's just a bunch of radical Jews. They're just doing their own thing. But Christ said, no, 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 I've come to fulfill this law. I'm not obliterating it. I'm not doing away. I'm fulfilling it. But for Jewish believers, following Jesus raised questions. Okay, okay. You say, Jesus is enough, but what do I do with my animal sacrifices? I'm supposed to go up to the temple every year. For some people, a few times a year, what do I do with my animal sacrifices? Well, you don't need those anymore. Well, wait a minute. I'm used to doing that. Yeah, but what do I do about the law of Moses? Well, you, you do believe the moral law, but you don't have to hold to the ceremonial law. Well, what do you mean? What about my diet? What about what, the way I eat and where I go and where I don't go? How did believing in Christ negate so much of what I've grown up believing How can I trust in Christ and Christ alone? And so what we see is this. Tolerance of this little Jewish sect known as Christianity would soon give way to torture and executions. And Nero would not leave this group alone forever. And believing in Christ, now listen to this phrase. Believing in Christ would be a life or death proposition. Is that true for you? not true for me not in this country not at least today I came back from Southeast Asia a few years ago on mission and I realized that one of the nationals in that country that hated Christians and Christianity one of the nationals was taken he had led us for a week more than a week he had led us around and he was taken by his own people and he was beat to within an inch of his life and there's a lot to that story but let me simply say this You did not walk into this building. I did not walk in here today wondering, will somebody beat me, take my home, close down my business, kill my children for believing in Jesus? What if being a Christian were a life or death proposition? Do you think you might need some encouragement to keep going? Do you think you might need a word to say, it is worth it? See, today it is the shame The mocking. Oh, you stupid, you moronic Christians. Can you believe them? Look at them. We're considered bigoted, prejudiced, and hateful today, even trying to walk the path of Christian love. And so the pressure today is not so much life or death, but it could be popularity or reputation. Think about what they were facing. When did this happen? I'm gonna put this, as most scholars tend to agree, in the mid-60s, okay? The mid-60s, that's not... Um, Elvis time, (laughs) that's the the mid-60s, like nothing 19, nothing 20, just the 60s. A.D., I would typically say, C.E., if you're all hung up in that stuff with common era, just 60s, about 30-ish years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Give or take 30 years why would I say it's in the 60s? Well, because you have present tense verbs being used talking about the ministry of the priest in the temple. The priests were still present tense ministering in the temple. What did I tell you happened in 70. There's nowhere to minister. They're they're still waiting on that temple to be rebuilt, in fact. And so what we find is that it would seem to me, as persecution intensified and was on the rise, it would seem that that time frame, plus the fact that Timothy is still alive, according to Hebrews 13, it would seem that the mid-60s-ish Are about right. So we see the author, the audience, the aim, and the time frame. Now we need to see what God says. Stand with me as we honor the reading of His Word. I'm going to read 1 to 4 because that's a complete thought. I'm going to stop at verse 3 because we don't even have time to start verse 4. Next week, I'm going to come back to another question. Today, who's the GOAT? Next week, what's up with angels? I think we have a weird fascination and a cultural misunderstanding of angels. We're gonna spend a lot of time unpacking chapter one and what the Bible teaches about angels, okay? And so that'll be next time. For today, chapter one, verse one. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past through, uh, to the fathers by the prophets, so that's how God did operate, But has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, or the eons, the ages. God made it all through Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself that is very important while he he and he alone had purged our sins or cleansed our sin sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name Heavenly Father, what an incredible book. As we start this journey, I know there's a lot to get through here today, but God, I pray that we wouldn't go so quickly. We miss the beauty of what this text is unpacking in this intro, that Jesus really is the greatest of all time. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So we're going to go very quickly. If you're taking notes, get ready. They'll stay on the screen, hopefully long enough for you to get all that you need. And then I'll put some verses up. Let's start. Jesus is God's ultimate prophetic voice. By ultimate, I mean supreme and final. All of these guys came and went. You've heard of them, guys like Isaiah, guys like Jeremiah, guys like Habakkuk. Uh, You've heard of these prophets, Hosea and others. You've heard of the psalmist like David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And you know that God spoke to and through guys like Moses. And so we have the Old Testament prophecies coming to us, but he's saying, in these last days, post resurrection days, God has spoken ultimately through the prophetic voice of Jesus Christ. He is God's greatest communication to us. John 14, look at it. Jesus said, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the father. It'll be enough. Just show us. Some of y'all are like that. I'm like that. God, I just want to see you. God, if you just help me see you, and Jesus said, I've been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say show us the Father? You wanna know what God looks like, you gotta look at the God-man Jesus. He is God in the flesh, he is 100% Almighty God, God had spoken through prophets and visions and dreams and angels and kings. God had spoken through a donkey, but now God is speaking divinely through Christ. And so Jews understood the last days when they use that phrase, last days, those are the days of the Messiah. Well, even though they didn't want to admit Jesus was the Messiah at first, he fulfills all those Messianic prophecies. And so Jesus is there in the last days. Uh, Y'all have heard of J. Edgar Hoover, I'm sure, director of the FBI, first director. He ran a tight ship, and by uh, pretty much every account, his subordinates were on the lookout to always impress their powerful boss. So there was a young man put in charge of the FBI's supply department, and in an effort to cut costs and impress the boss, he reduced the size of the memo paper that the FBI used One of the new memo sheets, the smaller sheet, ends up on Hoover's desk. Hoover looks at it and determines just very quickly he doesn't like the margins on the new sheet. And so he writes one simple note on it, watch the borders, and he gives it back. Well, everybody begins to freak out, and guess what happens? For several weeks, you could hardly get in or out of the United States. Bad communication uh, from who? I don't know. Maybe Hoover could have been clear. Maybe his subordinates could have been clear. Maybe somebody should ask, um, Director Hoover, what did you mean? Watch the border. It would have cleared up a lot of confusion and saved a lot of money. It's probably not a bad directive these days. But anyway, what we find is that we understand God has spoken and God has not stuttered. He's given us the written revelation. He's given us the living revelation of Jesus. When you look to Christ, well, how do I know about Christ? Through the written revelation. (laughs) Not your warm fuzzies. Not a Jesus made in our image. Not a little bobblehead plastic Jesus you put on your dash to protect you. I mean the real Jesus. When you learn who Jesus really is, then you see God's perfect communication. God breached the greatest communication gap of all time. He bridged it with Jesus. Well, how do you know it was the greatest gap? Well, because sinful man, after Adam and Eve, could no longer approach holy God. And so this great chasm was fixed. Jesus is the only one having his hand on God and his hand on man. He is God's ultimate prophetic voice. Notice he is God's appointed heir of all things. By the way, as you're filling that in, I'm just walking through the text. I'm not trying to be goofy and weird. I'm just walking through the text. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So that's his ultimate prophetic revelation. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Without Christ, we are destitute. We are without those resources which he both controls and distributes to his people. Jesus is the only rightful heir because he's the only begotten son of God. I am a monogenes. That's the word used in John 3.16 to describe Jesus. I am a monogenes. Jesus is a unique one and only son. Mono, genes, generation. Singular generation. Son of God. I am a singular son of Bobby Ray Lewis Sr., who became a senior, Bobby Ray Lewis or Bob and Nancy Lewis. I am a singular. So, what happens, unless they chose otherwise, what would happen to the inheritance? That inheritance comes to the son, right? As long as he uh, straightens up and flies right. So, that inheritance is through the Son. Jesus is the one and only Son of God, the monogonase of God. And Jesus has the inheritance of all that the Father has. Listen to what the Lord says in Psalm 2.8. It's a messianic psalm. Ask of me and I will give you, Messiah, the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And as we share in Jesus' victory over sin, guess what the Bible calls us? Brothers, and sisters in Christ. So listen to Ephesians 11. In him, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If you don't trust in the finished work of Jesus, you will not enjoy his inheritance. See, what the Bible says is that apart from the vine, Jesus, I can do nothing. But in Christ, I can be content and do all things. We are restored in Christ to a right relationship with God. We become joint heirs with Jesus. Y'all remember the little chorus? Do y'all sing it up here? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Y'all heard that? I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Do you know the next line? joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. We used to sing that a lot in church, the family of God. I'm a joint heir with Jesus because Jesus is God's appointed heir of all things. I'm a joint heir. Jesus is God's ultimate prophetic voice, third truth. Jesus is God's agent of all creation, I love how one commentator put it. He said, Surely a Christ whose hands had shaped the universe and summoned the galaxy of stars into being could hold the hands of the Jewish Christians in their day of testing and guide their steps through times of adversity. And our wonderful creator can guide your steps. God creates. And the agent of all creation right there in the Bible through whom he made all the worlds, all the eons. Jesus is the agent. I'm grateful that he's a creator. I'm grateful for somebody who created contact lenses. Man, I'm telling you, y'all would be a blur of color to me I'm grateful for those that developed hearing aids. I, would, I could hear, but it wouldn't be pleasant and my wife would be upset. And so I'm grateful for the guy that invented this wooden leg that I go. No, I'm kidding. It's not that bad. But I couldn't see or hear you without somebody creating something to help me. Think about it. That's just a little seeing and a little hearing. You wouldn't have one breath to breathe or one beat of a heart without the agent of all creation, Jesus. Whether you've accepted him yet as your Lord and Savior, the truth is he made you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You would not have any light. You would not have any life apart from Christ. He is God's agent of all creation. Look at this, he is God's radiant glory. It says in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory. What does that mean? Well, it's from the Greek word, this idea of radiance. He's emanating out like uh, rays coming from the sun. You can't really separate them. They're there because of the Son, but they're coming out from the Son. You cannot separate Christ and his glory. You can't separate God and the glory that Christ reveals of God. It's like John 1, 14. What does it say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is like those rays of light. You look to the Son, And if you tried to stare only at the sun, it would blind you. No, you see and feel and benefit from the rays of the sun. You can't look at God in the face in this body. You would die. The glory of God would overwhelm you. That's why in the rapture we'll be translated, transformed, we'll be made like Jesus because this fleshly body could not handle the exceeding glory, doxa, uh, where we get the word doxology. The glory of God, the brightest, the clearest picture of God is the God-man Jesus. He is the radiant glory of God. He is God's exact revelation. Notice that. He's the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. I use the word exact because express image, we don't normally use that word. We hear express, we hear fast. That's not what this means. It means exact unveiling. In fact, if you were to read the Greek word, if you could read Greek letters, some of you probably can, you would find in that verse three that it's the word character. So let me show you something. If I took my finger and drew a letter, let's say I make a V, but it's upside down. So an upside down V, and then I put a line in the middle. What character is that? It's an A. You didn't really have to think about it or process it a lot. You said this represents that. That is an A. And when you look at Jesus, you are seeing an exact revelation, an exact character of God. Colossians 2.9 says it this way, for in him Jesus dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's why in John 14, Jesus said, hey man, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You are seeing God when you see Jesus. He is God's exact revelation. He is God's comprehensive sustainer. Man, I love this truth. It says he's the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. See, it says he made them all. He's the agent of creation, but he upholds them all. Cosmic superglue, if you will. Have you ever thought, what if Jesus took two minutes off? What if Jesus took a break? What if Jesus sitting at God's right hand said, you know, Father, I'm tired. I think I'm going to rest a while. It's a good thing he doesn't take a break because if this earth stops spinning around its axis or rotating around our sun, if we got a little closer or a little farther away, we would burn up or freeze to death. And you say, how is all of it held together? It's not held together by man's made up laws to describe what God has done. It is held together by God, specifically Jesus Christ. He holds it all together. Think About it, Colossians 1 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. The Greek words better rendered, hold together. The cosmic superglue of it all. If Jesus took a break, not only for two minutes, but two seconds, it would all fall apart. All of us would be gone. Think about it. If Jesus decided to turn his back on us, which he will not, it would all come apart. Because it's important not only to create, but to have control over that. Have y'all stayed dry? You're doing okay. I haven't wet anybody. Okay. It's important that God created... But unlike the deist heresy, God controls moment by moment. My Papaw was a great creator. He was actually a master carpenter by trade. A brilliant guy, my dad's dad. I love Papaw. Went home to be with Jesus when I was in high school. But he lived with us a while. He lived down the road most of my life. And one time, I was five, six, somewhere in there, Papaw made me a go-kart. He found a lawnmower engine. He was always building stuff. He made me a go-kart, and I can remember we were right beside a granny's house in a big, beautiful grass field. Heather and Parker actually were married on that same piece of ground just a little ways back off the road, and and he made this go-kart, and I remember him pulling the thing, pulling the cord, and the engine firing up. And Man, I loved speed then, and I love speed now, but I always obey the speed limit. But he made... Okay, that was a lie, most of the time. So he made this go-kart, and I got very little instruction. What he didn't make was a break. He assumed that my five- or six-year-old self would understand that I pressed the gas, and when I let off, it would start to slow down. <laughs> he assumed wrong. I did not let off the, the gas I pressed the accelerator pedal and kept going and found it utterly hysterical that my papa and my dad and I think my mom got in on the race. They were all trying to catch me and I was doing my thing. You know, they're probably praying Jesus take the wheel, but I'm like, woo! this is awesome. See, my papa created it, but once I got inside, he had no control over it. And sometimes you might feel that way about your children And in the moments when you feel like you have no control, I would remind you that Jesus is the comprehensive sustainer. He upholds and he brings it all together. And you may feel like, well, they're out of my control, but they're never out of his control. So please remember that Jesus is holding it all together. And of course, we conclude with this truth. He is God's perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says not only is he upholding all things by the word of his power, but when he himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He had purged our sins. He cleansed us completely. That's the only purging mentioned in the Bible. There is no purgatory in the Bible. This is the only time we find this word or any variant thereof, this very word. And so he went all the way for you and me there's no purgatory when you trust in Christ because all your sin, past, present, and future, is purged. He accomplished what He set out to do at Calvary, and today we accept that by grace through faith in Christ alone, and you get complete forgiveness. You know, the truth is sometimes I forget that all my sin is purged, and sometimes I think I've got to work my way back to God if I've slipped. Now I know I'm saved. I know that, I know that, I know that, I know in 85 I gave my life to Jesus. I know that. I also know equally of Of assurance that I'm not a perfect guy that still wars with this flesh. And like Paul, I'm still tugging and pulling and I'm not there yet. I realize that. And I realize as long as my heart is beating, God is saying, You're not ready yet. And when it stops and when the lungs stop filling, God is saying, Okay, now, because He's never early and He's never late. That's from last week. But the reality is this Jesus is God's perfect sacrifice, flawless, complete sacrifice for our sins. Look at Romans 6. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer hath dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. You know what the writer of Hebrews is saying to those Jewish Christians? Hey, Amen. Don't go back to the temple. The priest is still doing the same old thing. He's still offering a sacrifice, but when Jesus died, he did it once for all, and now he lives this life to God, and you can live your life for God because Jesus paid it all. He sat down. What does that mean? It is finished. I'm done. I've finished What I came to do. Review very very quickly. One through seven. Jesus is God's ultimate prophetic voice. God's appointed heir of all things. His agent of all creation. His radiant glory. His exact revelation. His comprehensive sustainer. And his perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's just a few verses in, guys. Jesus is all of this and so much more. I want you to think about this. The Olympics will come and go. Y'all like the Olympics? I got into curling this year. Have you ever watched curling? It's quirky and weird, and I'm going to be honest with you. I think I could be an Olympic curler. I'm just going to be honest, okay? I'm not going to blow myself up, but I'm, I'm honestly thinking I could curl, and I think I could do, like, luge or something. You know, strap me in. Woo! I think I could do that. There are just certain things I'm going, really? Olympic Athlete? And then you have these awards, right? You get the gold medal, and then you get the biggest loser medal. Of all the losers, you're the number one loser, the silver medal. That's a great position to be in, right? Like the Jerry Seinfeld skit, you know, oh, ever the world, you know, the world knows you, and the world celebrates you, and you're on the cover of Wheaties. Number two, nobody knows your name. <laughs> it's a crazy thing, and then you break records, and guess what? Records will be broken again, because the next Olympics will come around And I mentioned some of the coaches and some of the players, and then we have the Super Bowl, and I love football. I'm excited for football to start, but okay, somebody's going to win, and then we're going to go to next season. And then we have the World Series. I was a baseball fanatic as a child. Are we arrogant or what? We don't let other countries play, but we call it the World Series. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? It's a weird country. And you got the great, some of you are going to ponder that for a while. You got the greatest athletes and musicians and leaders and the scholars of, oh, he's the greatest of the scholars and authors and teachers and doctors. Oh, look at them, they're preeminent in their field. But there's one thing all of those have in common. Every single thing I've just mentioned is a horizontal comparison. And horizontal comparisons are dangerous. Let me tell you why, as a Christian. You can almost always find somebody farther away from God than you to make you feel too good about yourself. And you can almost always find somebody that's higher up than you that'll make you feel bad about yourself. There is only one standard, Jesus the Christ. There is only one who truly shows us God in full. As Jeff comes up, I want to remind you of two things. We are all equally lost before God. None is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are equally lost before God. Number two, we can equally be saved before God. no, nope, nope. God chooses before the foundation of the world. God has to choose me. Listen to me. If you come to Jesus, God chose you. Don't sweat the small stuff, okay? You say, well, if I trust Jesus, how do I know? If you trust Jesus, you know, congratulations. Don't get hung up in things that you can't fully understand and unpack and that at the end of the day don't matter. Whosoever will may come. Yes, God also chose you first. The reality is we're all in it together. And what I love about this gospel, like this precious little one that came to faith this week, children know that they're sinners. Honest children know that they mess up a lot. Children understand that God could come to this world in flesh and pay the price and die on the cross to take their place, to take the punishment they rightly deserve. They can understand that he would be buried but by the power of God be raised to live again three days later and then ascend back to God some 40 days later and sit down beside the Father so he can now mediate for you and me and hold it all together by the word of his power. They understand that but I want to remind you right here and right now that when we look to the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find the undisputed, undefeated, unparalleled champion of all the world, the greatest of all the prophets, the greatest of all the priests, the greatest of all the kings. In fact, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He is the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can ask me the question and I can tell you the answer all day. Who's the goat? It is Jesus. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.